welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. Wow, it's been a long journey. I thought, okay, we have a studio now. It's all gonna go like clockwork. You know, Laura and I are gonna swoop in, perfectly made up, ready to go, ready to record. And it's not been like that. It's been like two steps forward, two steps back, tech problems, audio problems. That's right. Well, Sarah, maybe we should start off by saying welcome to Ivy League Murder. You know, you're absolutely right, but we are recording and that's exciting to me. You it's know? exciting, and if, if you don't know it, we built a studio with a lot of help, and uh, especially from Cy uh, Badek, and um, we are recording for the first time in our studio, so it's super exciting, especially because we started off on an iPhone. Absolutely, and today we have a great case for you, because what we did is we have taken Charles Manson, which is a case everybody knows. I mean, if you're at all a crime head or even if you were conscious, <laughs> <laughs> you've heard of the Charlie yes, Manson, the Manson exactly. family murders. Yeah. However, what we've done is Laura found a victim, Abigail Folger, had a Harvard connection. So we went back and looked at the Manson murders from a slightly different lens. So we'll take you into it and we're calling this one Harvard's Abigail Folger and the Manson family's other forgotten victims. So let's just get going. It was late on the hot summer night of August 8th, 1969, when members of the Manson family descended upon Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon and brutally killed five people. The gorgeous wife of Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate, was eight and a half months pregnant at the time. Four other people were slaughtered that night, and that's who we are going to focus on in this episode. The next night, members of the Manson family senselessly targeted and killed a middle-aged couple, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, in their Los Feliz home. The two nights of carnage and terror became known as the Tate-LaBianca murders. Think about that, Laura. It's known as the Tate-LaBianca murders. Even the name precludes the other victims, so that's who we're focusing on today. Tate's extraordinary beauty in being the pregnant wife of Roman Polanski, famed director of the horror hit Rosemary's Baby, there's developed a cult surrounding Sharon Tate and her murder. Sarah, I love me some Sharon Tate. Valley of the Dolls, Jacqueline Suzanne, which has really become like camp cult classic. But today we're going to talk about lesser known victims at the scene and one that had Ivy League ties. 
That's right. And so why and how did this happen? So even after this long, I think people are just stumped by this case. It's the senselessness of it. The mastermind behind this tragedy is Charles Manson. How did he convince his collection of lost, drug-addled souls to commit such acts of cruelty? Helter Skelter was Manson's insane plan to start a race war by planning and perpetrating the Tate-LaBianca murders. And it's all the more baffling that he convinced his cult members to carry out his murderous plans. It really plans. is. In doing this, I have to give a huge shout out to my sister, Margaret Weir, who's a writer in her own right. And she helped us a lot with the scripting of this. And so in going about this in a bit of gallows humor, please forgive me. So she came up with the phrase Manson family values. So I thought that was absolutely hilarious. But I just wanted to say thank you so much to Margaret Weir, my sister. I miss you. Thank you for contributing. My newest, to newest girl crush. I know. I know. Laura and Margaret have some thing going on now. I'm just whatever, you know, I just <laughs> whatever. Okay. Such the third. I just wish we were point. in the same time zone. I know. Oh, me too. <laughs> my God. My sister is basically like if you took Audrey Hepburn and a truck driver and like mated them together, that's my sister. And so. that's that's why I love her. I know. I know. That's like, that's the perfect combination for me. <laughs> so both Laura and I read Helter Skelter as teens and really... Pre-teens. Pre-teens. <laughs> All right, Laura, you win. Whatever. Okay. So, but ever since reading that book, I have been obsessed with the Manson murders. And really, we have to call ourselves out on this because we first were Ivy League murders. We were kind of attracted to this story because of Abigail Folger went to Harvard. Once again, Harvard. And she was a coffee heiress, and we'll get into that. And we'll definitely have a focus on Abigail Folger, but shame on us a little bit. I want to do a little bit of mea culpa because there are other victims in this case. Definitely. That also we are going to talk about because I think they really get outshone by Sharon Tate's and Roman Polanski's enormous celebrity, basically. Oh, so, definitely. You know. Definitely. One in particular, almost forgotten. And fueled by drugs and Charlie's commandment to kill piggies, as he called members of the establishment, something actually, Sarah, that he had taken from the song Piggies from the Beatles' White Album. And Helter Skelter, he pulled that from the Beatles. Yeah, from I mean, the Beatles. He, well, Manson thought that the Beatles were talking directly to him. Right, you know, or, well, which, that's what, or, or that's what he told his followers. So that fateful August night, four members of the Manson family set off to do Charlie's bidding. Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Pat Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian. It became known as Helter Skelter. And so 10,050 Cielo Drive was really the fulcrum of Charlie Manson's resentment. The address became the illogical target of Manson's rage directed at Terry Melcher. Can I add also, to, for those who don't know it, that Terry Melcher is Doris Day's son. That's, yeah. We'll get more into Terry Melcher was a record producer. He had lived at that address. So in Manson's mind, Cielo Drive came to represent really the establishment, the elite, and the world that Manson could not penetrate in any substantial way. We'll explore Charlie's unsuccessful attempts at musical fame a little bit later in the podcast because it is relevant to instigating this whole thing. So we are going to focus on Abigail Folger now. So we are. And on Ivy League murders, we usually give you the history of the Ivy League college. But, you know, this far into the series, Sarah, we, you know, we know what everyone's thinking. 
Enough with Harvard already. Oh, God. No, I could talk about Harvard all day long. Okay, I just want to talk about Harvard for one second. Okay, because this is reality of having gone to Harvard. My Harvard classmate, Harvard class of 90, Andy Jazzy, right. has now just stepped in as CEO at Amazon. Those are the caliber of my classmates. Sarah. Okay, I, talk about talk about feeling lesser then. Okay. Right. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm in the midst of like great minds. Well, Sarah, I want you to know that my classmate, Robert Scotland, shout out to Robert. He put a hot tub in Eaton Hall at University of Miami. And I think that that's a great mind and takes a lot of creativity. Stop, tra- stop trying to, to one-up one me. Steve Minogue <laughs> for getting us on Playboy's top 10 party school. All right. Great minds. Okay, can we talk? back to back to um, why people at Harvard kill more than any of your Ivy League? But anyway, let's get back to Harvard. We want to mention Radcliffe too because Abigail went to Radcliffe and she acted in several dramatic productions and she loved it. I guess she had a flair for acting as well, which is very interesting. And she got her bachelor's in 1964 and she attended Harvard for graduate studies in art history. I also majored in art history and not to make it all about me but but art history i'm telling you was the perfect major because you could show up hungover dark slides my first class was at 11 a.m it was a perfect party kind of uh, major hey i did want to looking at this and looking at abigail folger and when she went to radcliffe she and jane Britton. She is also a murder victim. They both went to Radcliffe at the same time. They very well could have crossed paths. They very well could have known each other. Oh, and would have lived in Cambridge, in, in at, the Cambridge at the same time and probably in very close proximity to each other. But you know what the other further? They were both brutally murdered in 1969. Isn't that odd? Yeah, very odd. You know? Right. Yeah. Very, very, very tragic. So on a lighter note... Or darker, if you prefer. <laughs> We're going to talk about something else that we really love and something really important to me, man. Yeah, no, something crucial in my life. Coffee. Coffee, right. <laughs> and the once reigning coffee family in America, the Folgers. We generally do give a history of the universities, but since, again, it's Harvard, we thought we would go more into the history of Folgers Coffee. So Folgers Coffee was founded in 1872 by James Folger. In 1900, after James' death, the business had passed on to his sons and began to expand tremendously. Figuring out where the best beans came from, Folger pioneered the idea of mountain brew coffee and containers designed to seal the flavor and better. So James Folger insisted early on that the most important thing was quality and that profit was secondary, that the money would follow if quality was good. And he was right. By the 1950s, under the leadership of Peter Folger, Abigail's dad, their coffee became the number one brand in America, the coffee on all breakfast tables. (laughs) And so their slogan, the best part of waking up. I'm not going to sing it, Sarah, so why don't we play it? I know, you know, you won't sing it. So uh, we're going to play the jingle right now for you. Oh, what that aroma can do, brought a day for me and you. The best part of waking up is folders in your cup. So the darling heiress to this huge fortune was... Abigail Folger Gibby, as her friends called her, was born in San Francisco, California, on August 11, 1943, to Peter Folger, who at that time was the chairman and the president of the Folger Coffee Company. 
and her mom was Inez Maia. She was the daughter of a prestigious El Salvadoran and California family, one of the land-grant families. I take it to mean that huge tracts of land were given to people like the Maia family. So they were like basically like California aristocracy, but with some Latin American roots as well. Abigail was raised Catholic and her parents divorced in 1952 when Abigail was a young girl. Her mother stated that the grounds for divorce were extreme cruelty. <laughs> okay, and this, this is a terrible joke. No, it's a pun. I'm sorry. I, I couldn't resist. Okay, a pun. I'm sorry, Harvard. But other than divorce, Abigail seemed to have had a charmed life, Sarah. Yes. So growing up wealthy in San Francisco, she fully enjoyed local culture, the latest books, arts and music. She was a talented piano player and attended the exclusive Catalina Girls School, where she was an ideal student graduating with honors and was accepted at Radcliffe. While a freshman, Abigail entered high society formally as a debutante in San Francisco in what would be the highlight of the season. Sarah, she wore a bright yellow custom Dior dress to her cotillion. I, I would love to see that dress. We, we looked for pictures of it. But... No, actually, I found a picture, but it's not in color. It's just like a newspaper clipping, so it's hard to really get the... But I'm going to keep looking, so... But but we're giving the, the audience the impression that Abigail was like some like snooty society girl. She, she was, was no Trustafarian. She, she was... She yeah. was not at all. I mean, she was... When she was in San Francisco, ironically, Laura, she was doing volunteer work on Haight-Ashbury Street. Now, Haight-Ashbury Street has this image of being like this hippie mecca and everything. But no, there was like homelessness, sickness, poverty, sexual disease. There were a lot of people who were hungry. It was an area that needed a lot of help. And she, I think maybe because of her mom, she had the need to sort of help other people. What's ironic to me though, Laura, is that a lot of the Manson girls were also on Haight-Ashbury at the time. So she very well might have crossed paths with some of them as well. Right. I think people yeah. forget social services and a lot of things that we have available today were just starting to become available in the 60s. You're absolutely Food right. Food stamps didn't start till 1964. A lot of things were just not available as we see them today. And absolutely. people had to go to food banks, to clinics, and Abigail took the responsibility of what Wealth. She was brought up that way yes. and took it yeah. as a responsibility to give back. She was not a spoiled brat, in other words. I get the feeling, though, so she graduated from Radcliffe. Uh, I think she moves back to San Francisco, right? Then moves to New York. She's definitely kind of a restless soul in many ways. Yeah, you know? but I mean, who isn't in, in that age group? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, my God. Right? But, I... but plus it's 60s. I mean, you know, everything is kind of breaking up socially in some ways it's kind of you're encouraged to kind of go find yourself I think in many ways and especially yeah. if you think about when she graduates and that time frame and it's really in Vietnam and JFK has been assassinated and things are just really breaking down culturally absolutely and war protests war and... protests civil rights movement yep the pill has been legalized by this point in 1960 and I... so people are just coming out of the 50s and the values and 
morals, everything's changing. And you made the point too, I think it was an excellent one, that the pill is invented as well. And that people in general are kind of questioning authority, including women. This is the women's liberation movement. People are burning bras. People are questioning authority in general. And this was a real time for sort of the women's movement, frankly. Well, it was. And you have to think of the 50s as being the era of the housewife, you know, after the men all came back from the war. Yep. And now, you know, the 60s are the women taking themselves back. Absolutely. Now, we have to get back, though, to the, <laughs> the fact that Abigail Folger was the heiress to the Folger fortune. I mean, this is a fortune. This is know. a fortune. And so what was her yearly trust? Her yearly trust at that time was 130000 which in today's money, you figured out, is a million dollars. a million a dollars. So yeah. she lived very comfortably. Yeah. She took jobs that she wanted, yes. basically, not needed. Absolutely. And so she did move back to New York. She's a little bored with San Francisco, and I think she had had a, like, a museum job, and she's kind of bored. So she took a job at a magazine publisher know which one I can't remember and mixed well among the bohemian set in New York City so this is important it was in that world that kind of literary artsy world in New York at that time at a book party in 1967 when Abigail met Jersey Kozinski now keep that name in mind because that's an important a little bit later on who was married to the American Steel heiress Mary Hayward Weir. They ran in the same wealthy circles and they became fast friends. Abigail was then introduced to aspiring writer, and I can never say this guy's name correctly, but Wojtek Frykowski. <laughs> and they hit it off right away. And we only met, like I said, we only mentioned Kozinski here because he does come up later on. So make a note of that. So Wojtek was not fluent in English. This is really funny to me. But Abigail spoke French. She was fluent. So they spoke French together. And the international language of love. And how romantic is that? Oh, I, I love that they spoke French together. So she showed him around New York City and romance, as we said, began. He moved into her apartment and soon she was supporting him financially. The couple grew bored in New York and decided to move to California so Abigail could get involved in a new welfare project for the poor and Wojtek could pursue his writing career. Little did they know how fateful this decision would be. Absolutely. We got to mention too that Wojtek was also born and raised in Poland, and that's how he met Roman Polanski, the movie director there, years earlier. So Polanski's mother had been killed in a concentration camp, and he and Wojtek survived the Holocaust as Poles under Hitler, not an easy thing. And Wojtek, as you said, was from a wealthy family, and he had actually helped finance one of Roman's early films. And, you know, they developed a close bond. I mean, I think you can't go through something like a war together and not really form a close bond. So once in California, Abigail and Wojtek rented a pad in Laurel Canyon next to Cass Elliott from The Mamas and the Papas. I don't know. I'm going to have to stop there and just say, wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, best neighbors ever. Yes, that's right. Well, it's not only her. It was like Steve McQueen, right? And Quincy Jones. I mean, it sounds freaking cool. Oh, my God. It was like, you know? it was like everybody, like Warren Beatty was hanging out. Yeah. And it was just like, I mean, Anthony Hopkins. And yeah. I mean, it was just like, it was just incredible who was hanging around there. And also, so through Wojtek, Abigail met the Planskys, Roman and Sharon, as well as Jay Sebring who we'll talk 
talk about in a minute. So the five just became totally fast friends. And they really were part of this like rich and beautiful set in LA. We're huge Dominic Dunn fans and he writes about that a lot, how they were just really part of the whole in crowd, Natalie Wood, Dominic Dunn, just all of the big in people in Hollywood at the time. And it was much more permeable society at that time. Yeah, but that's something we want to address. And we really want to recommend the podcast, You Must Remember Manson. And we, uh, yeah, so definitely. Did, did Grace Byzantin, did she suggest this? Grace suggests a lot of our content So Grace, she's, she's like a master of she, content. She's, she's a master. She's also, this is an unsolicited ad. Okay, like I reordered my beauty counter products. I just ordered foundation. Oh my God, the, the, <laughs> the best in the world. I mean, yeah. I love it. They're not paying us. I'm just throwing it no, out there. She, yeah, Ladies, she's... beauty counter products are freaking bomb right. anyway and so is she so thank you grace for that that's really enjoyable if you want to deeper dive on this manson matter you must remember manson is a great 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 way to do it we do owe a debt to them too because they really helped in terms of explaining how okay so what you had in hollywood for a long long time 40s 50s you had this kind of celebrity royalty the Joan Crawfords of the world. Well, you had a studio world, too. You had studio world, which was impermeable to anybody else. When the 60s come along, what you have is a lot more social permeability. In other words, you've got people like Mama Cass, like the neighbor from the Mamas and the Papas, who, look, if you want to go and smoke a bowl at Mama Cass's house and you're just a nobody in Hollywood, she's like, come along. There's a much more, much more of a transference Stars at that time were also really fascinated with the cult, you know, yeah, I was gonna culture. Mention you know. that I think part of that is you know you're coming out of the days of Ozzy and Harriet and Donna Reed and kind of an uptight TV and movie scene in yeah. Hollywood, and they're kind of getting hip to the fact that they need to change to meet the needs of society. So they're a little fascinated by this counterculture. Yeah, and I have to say it's all lubricated by drugs too. Yes, and we we haven't really talked about the drugs a lot yet, and we don't want to besmirch anyone's name, but Abigail and Wojtek were heavily involved in drugs, and I think that was very normal for the time. I think that's very normal for people in their early 20s. You know, I don't want to normalize that or, you know, I'm not knocking her for it. I think she was a young woman kind of finding herself experimenting with the culture of the time. And that was part of it. Absolutely. Yeah, she was. She was definitely doing that. And so around this time, sort of in his eerie parallel world, Charles Manson was also trying to worm his way into the top levels of the L.A. music scene. This is so bizarre. And so if you think about it, Charlie Manson was the ultimate opportunist. And so what he, and with this new permeability, he finds himself sort of meeting more famous people. So at the time of the murders, Manson and his followers were living at Spawn Ranch, which was essentially kind of an abandoned Western movie set. Manson had this dark magnetism that attracted really the lost of the world, the runaways, the addicts, the products of broken homes and hearts. Manson provided them with a sense of family. His followers, in turn, gave up everything for him, 
including a really healthy sense of self-will. And it's interesting to add that as we've done more research into Manson, you know, it's, you know, Manson really used things like my, one of my favorite books, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and uh, things he learned in Scientology, mm-hmm. and he would give everyone acid and not take it, and all kinds of things he used in order to manipulate people. So no. he was a master manipulator. So along the way, Manson had cultivated a friendship with the Beach Boys' Dennis Wilson, who was briefly amused by Charlie and the family. Wilson, Wilson's totally hot, by the way. <laughs> I, think he, I think he may have been more amused by the women than by Charlie. Oh, totally. Dennis Wilson loved women. And so Manson always had willing women at his beck and call. And Wilson was kind of beguiled by Charlie and the music and the scene. And he tried unsuccessfully to get Charlie a record deal. So we're going to play you a little bit of Manson's music and let you be the judge. Laura says she doesn't think it's too bad. But. <laughs> My world is a sad world Often wonder if there's blame Such a fool and a mad, mad world With no picture in my frame Everyone says crazy food. So you get the idea. Like, I picture Charlie strumming his half-baked tunes, his groupie swaying intoxicated by his LSD and his mind control. But Charlie only fooled the fools, his followers, basically. Yes. So, and so through Dennis Wilson, Manson met Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher was the son of Doris Day and a very successful music producer. So he produced The Birds, among other big bands. And I think Melcher was kind of like all of them kind of into the counterculture and was cool and down but he was a hard-nosed businessman at the end of the day and candace bergman's boyfriend that's right yeah exactly and so manson was well aware that melcher was living at cielo drive at the time he had tried to court melcher for a record deal manson of course believed himself to be a musical genius and so, like Wilson, although Melcher was initially charmed by Manson and the, the family's free love ways, eh, we'll see how that goes. There was a funny little anecdote about how Melcher went to go visit Charlie Manson, and the Manson family had outfitted this bus, like, pretty well with, like, all their belongings and a stove, and they had, like, really outfitted this bus. And Charlie was saying to Melcher, like, oh, I don't care about material possessions and so some random guy on the beach was like okay you don't care about material but can i have your bus <laughs> now and, and charlie was like yeah go ahead and here are the keys take it so melcher was like really impressed by that but melcher also saw charlie for what he was which was just like a middling talent and it didn't help i had read this as well that charlie would get violent during recording sessions he would threaten the techs who were just like trying to help him with, with yeah. like stuff that he didn't understand. But I think people like Melcher, who was a really, really smart man, professional, professional, at the end of the day, saw through it and saw that he was a con artist yeah. and a creepy criminal. Yeah, no, when no. it came down to it. Yeah, and I think that that really bothered Charlie that he was able to see through that. You're right. I think the message ultimately to Charlie was like, "You're good, but you're not that good." I don't think Charlie's ego could handle it. And this is what ignited Helter Skelter, and it all exploded at Cielo Drive. It did. 
it really didn't matter to Charlie that Melcher no longer lived there and that the Polanskis had now made it their home. Like after the record deal soured, Cielo Drive came to represent all piggies, all rich, entitled, famous people who had snubbed Manson. Through Wojtek, Abigail became close with the Polanskis and stayed in their home on Cielo Drive when they were away filming in Europe. I also want to bring up Jay Sebring. Jay Sebring is a very interesting character that comes up in this. So he had this very unique relationship with Sharon Tate. They had been together. He had... They had been engaged. They had been engaged. I think Jay was still very much in love with I Sharon do too. And Tate. he was kind of like a fill-in when Roman wasn't around. Yeah, he was like, he was kind of like Sharon's companion, basically. Exactly. To what extent, we don't know. You know, no judgment, whatever. You but know. let's talk about if the movie Shampoo, if you haven't seen the movie Shampoo, which is loosely based on J.C. Bring. J.C. Bring was quite a womanizer, and he really kind of revolutionized men going to the salon. Prior to Sebring, men went to barbershops. Yeah, they did. And if you think about actors like Steve McQueen, he had these sort of certain iconic oh, kind of 70s. I almost think about Warren it. Beatty. Warren Beatty. It's kind of like Helmet Head a little bit. Now it's a little bit dated, but it was super hip back then. But they yeah. started to like go in and have their hair washed and get by, the full experience by beautiful women. By beautiful women. Think about Playboy Man hair salon slash hair salon that was jay sebring's thing and he was hugely successful hugely it. successful that the salon in beverly hills had separate doors one was just for his female companion so he was quite a character and there's a documentary uh, about him out uh, now on amazon prime i haven't watched it yet oh yeah yeah, yeah. so just we'll post i'll post about that on facebook I, I can't I can't believe that. You're usually like a black hole of, of like anything having to do with the case usually. I can't believe you haven't watched I know, that. I know. Okay. Well, I know. I, I didn't want to, you know yeah. go off too too much into into another in a tangent, but um So I just wanna also just back up a little bit. So when Sharon returns from Europe, uh Roman is still in London filming something or writing something, I think. And she's very pregnant. Oh, she's like eight and a half months like pregnant. So she begs Abigail to stay with her on Cielo Drive until Roman returned. And there was definitely some tension in the house, we have to mention. First off, Sharon was not super keen on Wojtek. He was a heavy drug user at this point, and he was dealing drugs as well. Abigail and Wojtek were not super getting along, kind of on their way out as a couple as well. So there was not like this happy, peaceful home necessarily. Yeah, I'm not sure Sharon really wanted any of them there. I mean, maybe she wanted them there to not be alone, but I think she was really ready to be nesting and getting ready to have a family and settle down and not really kind of be in that lifestyle anymore. Yeah, and Sharon Tate makes these public announcements that she doesn't really care that Polanski was flagrantly unfaithful to her, but I can't imagine. She's super pregnant with his baby. He's away. I don't think she wanted to stay alone on Cielo Drive. Yeah, I think that was a lot of it. And Roman was in London at the time and apparently had been sleeping mm. with another woman on the night of the murder. So guy's a genius director, but honestly not husband of the year in my opinion. But <laughs> Not at all. So on the evening of Friday, August 8th, 1969, Abigail, Sharon, J.C. Bring, and Wojtek all went out to El Coyote for dinner at 9 p.m. So El Coyote is this like iconic Mexican restaurant. Don't ask me if I've been 
I was drinking a lot back then. <laughs> okay, I think it's still around, El Coyote. So when they returned, everybody relaxed and went to their rooms. Abigail was reading and Jay was laying on the couch. Nobody could have anticipated the terror that would soon begin. So Abigail was last heard from at 10 p.m. when she called her mother to confirm weekend plans. And like we said, Abigail and Wojtek were having issues basically breaking up. Yeah, it seems that way. Safe to say the five people happened to be at Cielo Drive that night had no idea what was coming for them. So meanwhile, and on massive amounts of speed, and their minds totally warped by Charles Manson, Tex Watson, Pat Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins, and Linda Kasabian made their way to Cielo Drive. They were armed with rope, a gun, and knives. So first to fall victim was an 18-year-old kid, Stephen Parent. Laura, he was just simply driving up to Cielo Drive to pick up some electronics, and Tex Watson shot him four times and killed him in his car. Stephen Parent upsets me so much, and we've been talking about this because I just feel like he is really the ultimate overlooked victim, and it's mentioned that he was shot, and then it's like onto the crime. Yeah, exactly. He was really... From what I've been reading about him, fun, interesting, smart. His friends called him Carrot Top. I know. He was a six foot tall, cute redhead. Kind of lanky. He was way into electronics. Oh, way into it. (laughs) So tell us about his little... uh, So I, I, I think this is funny because he actually had been arrested several times. And this is not to besmirch his name, but... You know, when we were in high school, people were getting, were shoplifting, like, clothes and makeup in Harvard Square. Stephen was, like, shoplifting electronics so he could take them home and take them apart and learn how they were made. I know. (laughs) I feel like if he had had the opportunity to live, that he definitely would have done something really great. Engineer or something. Some some player in Silicon Valley, for sure, you know. Yeah, he just, everything I read about him and his family, he was working two jobs to go to college. Yeah. All these victims were wrong place, wrong time, but especially he's picking up some electronics that he had bought. From the caretaker. And apparently, I read also that his family was so devastated by his death that they all piled into one bed to grieve. And also his parents, the added insult was his parents felt like his death was totally overlooked because, again, it's outshone by the celebrities involved in this case. We wanted to really, he's the one who gets me the most in this murder, having read about him, having read about this complicated funny fun sweet kid who oh yeah i mean i looked at his prom pictures the image of that family all in bed just grieving that loss it's heartbreaking to me it really is and i just really feel like he would have accomplished great things in that he was just a really beloved young man and so so we need to recognize him and i actually posted his picture last night on facebook and our group so that people can remember him After they killed Stephen Parent, the four Manson murderers scaled a wall and they were armed with a rope and a gun and several knives. And the next thing that happened was Tex Watson then stuck a gun in Wojtek's sleeping face. Then when Wojtek asked who he was, Tex Watson answered that I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. So the four victims were rounded up and tied up in the living room. Jay Sebring protested, till the end trying to protect Tate. He was shot and stabbed by Tex. 
Wojciech was also stabbed by Tex, but managed to struggle free of the ropes and made it to the porch. He was stabbed a total of 51 times. You know, I took a look at his autopsy picture, and Wojciech was covered in stab wounds. So this tough, resilient man who had survived being a Pole under the Nazi invasion, Laura, finally succumbed to his wounds. So sad. I mean, then Abigail also was able to flee, chased closely by Pat Krenwinkel, crying for her mother. Krenwinkel caught up with Abigail, and Tex then stabbed her to death. Her nightgown, Sarah, was so saturated with blood that it had originally been white, but it was completely red. Yep. Sharon Tate was last, and she had begged for the life of her baby. And there's some ambiguity in the testimony. Susan Adkins initially boasted that she had killed Sharon, but then she got religion in prison and pinned it on Tex Watson. She did dig a rag into Tate's blood and wrote pigs and death to pigs on the wall and on the living room wall and on the front door. So, you know, the stories have varied through the years, but there's some consistency to that basic narrative. Yeah, so we're going to play a clip from Susan Atkins and so this is in her own words as she describes that night. This is again take it with a grain of salt because it's 7 years into incarceration. She is off drugs and she was sort of seeking redemption at this point. And not just that, but that we were instructed to go all the way down every house, hit every house on the on the street. On the street, yes. And kill all the people kill in those houses. People in all those houses. And we went into the house, and I remember that as we went in, a car came up to the driveway, and I remember Tex getting out, and without saying anything, they were gunned by a sh- shot. I was in the bushes, and... Uh, That's when the young boy, Stephen Parent, was, right, killed was killed in the right, car outside. Right. The people in the house were all brought into the living room and tied up, and I remember that Wojtek Bakowski, I believe is his name, I had tied his hands with a towel and then was instructed to kill him. And I raised the knife that I had in my hands and I couldn't put the knife down. I, I, could not, I couldn't bring it down. It was just as though there was a force there that held my wrist and I couldn't, I couldn't move. And as he saw that I couldn't move, then he very easily undid the ties, the towel that I had tied his wrist with, and he and I began to fight. And I remember I was screaming for help and he was screaming for help. And then Tex came and helped me, and I was left to sit and watch Sharon Tate. And about that time, it, I can remember seeing people just scattering in different places and running in different places. And I was left sitting with Sharon Tate, and she was talking to me. And I remember that I had absolutely, I could have, I felt nothing. I felt absolutely nothing for her as she begged for her life and for the life of her baby. I remember when we first went in, one of the people said, who are you? And Tex said, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. And I remember that in my conscience, it, it's so alive in me, even just recalling it, I remember that I had gone so far and there was no turning back. There, even if I had wanted to run, even if I had wanted to leave, I couldn't. It was like I was caught in something that I had no control over. I had absolutely no say-so as to what was happening there. I was just like a tool in the hands of the devil is the only way I can put it. And I believe that it was by the grace of God that my hand did not go down with that knife on Wojciech Kowski's chest. I believe that... Uh, well, who did kill those people? That night? Yeah. Tex. Well, I can ask you now, what, what did Tex really do there? Of what I saw happening in Tex 
the way he moved, the viciousness and cold. It was just like seeing somebody go crazy with more power than I've ever seen anybody. I don't think he was in control of himself. I think that he was, in their own human strength, could do what Tex did. Well, Charles night. Manson was in control of him, right? Yeah, as far as giving orders, but I don't think Charles Manson's mind was in control of Tex's mind that night. Among the family members, there's some confusion about who did what that night. Initially, there was a lot of bragging because each of the members wanted credit and they wanted the attention and approval from Charlie. And they wanted the publicity too. As time went on, there was much more finger pointing, redactions and contradictions. So I've got to point out that all of these victims were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, as we've said. In fact, remember Jersey Kozinski, the guy who gave the uh, book party? Sure, where, yeah, in New York. Where that's where Abigail and Wojtek had met each other. Kozinski was supposed to stay at Cielo Drive that night, but LAX screwed up his luggage and he didn't make it. Wow. He would have been the sixth victim. I'm unbelievable. I know. And then I also read in a 1971 Playboy article, Polanski said he felt enormous guilt because he wasn't there. He felt he could have talked to the murderers, could have prevented the tragedy. You know, maybe, but like Kaczynski, he might have ended up being the sixth victim as well. Polanski, in my mind, is without a doubt a genius director. I'm not sure he's the greatest human being, though. He can't return to American soil without being arrested for anally raping a 13-year-old yeah. girl. Okay, so after the murders on Cielo Drive, the Manson families come back to Charlie and they report kind of what happened. And Charlie was disappointed in how sort of messily they did it. And that not everybody got their hands dirty, he felt. Linda Kasabian, who ends up being a very important witness on this and is granted immunity later on. But let's back up a little bit because the family members come back to Spawn Ranch. They report back to Charlie. He is disappointed in a way and thinks that, hey, I'm going to go with them on this next night, which is the night of August 9th, to show them kind of how it's done. Exactly. And on the next night, he brings Leslie Van Houten as well. And they go out and they go to the Los Feliz neighborhood. And he had been somewhat familiar with the house in that neighborhood. And again, he kind of randomly picks a neighbor's house, well, not even the house he was familiar with. And this was the home of Lino and Rosemary La Bianca. That's right. So Charlie initially goes into their home. He ties them up and he gets the other family members who are accompanying them. Again, they brutally kill the La Biancas. They write on the wall. They actually stick a fork and a knife into Mr. La Bianca's backside. They carve the word war into his stomach and they... It's brutal. It's, it, it's brutal. It's brutal. And let's just say that Charlie goes in and ties them up and then he leaves. So he's not present during any of the murders. That's right. And after the murders, the family members write in blood, helter skelter, death to pigs, and the word rise on the walls. So obviously the authorities know that these two murders are connected. So the Manson family then flees to Barker Ranch in Death Valley, and they're sort of inanely waiting for helter skelter to begin. Now this is the race war that Manson had predicted. And let's also keep in mind that at the same time this is happening, they have no money. Kind of resorting to petty crimes. When they're living. When they're, right. right. And to survive. And this is basically what gets them tripped up. 
But these murders were not solved right away. They were not solved right away. And the two nights of murder really left the authorities baffled. And the elites in L.A. just terrified. Nobody knew. Terrified. Like, who was next? People got guard dogs, gun sales skyrocketed. And they're really wondering who the hell did this and why. And they couldn't figure it out. People really thought there could be some crazy person out there wanting to kill wealthy people and celebrities. Well, and they weren't far wrong. You're right. They weren't far wrong. And people, I mean, now you see it in Bel Air, L.A., Beverly Hills, the gated communities and homes. But after Manson and these crimes, these things all sprung up. Security systems and, like you said, guard dogs, weapons, everything changed. And that society that we talked about being so permeable, all of a sudden, the boundaries went right up. Yeah, understandably. And very understandably, because it was four months from the time of the crime where nobody knew who had committed these crimes or why. Exactly. So what happens? How is this revealed? It's revealed in a couple of different ways. So during these four months, a lot of suspicion comes on Roman Polanski, really almost simply because Rosemary's Baby had been this kind of big horror cult classic hit, and it had involved the occult and the devil, and it was also speculation that this had to do with drugs because there was a lot of drug use going on. So there was all kinds of theories, and people were speculating, and nobody knew. They weren't sure if Polanski was jealous because Jay Sebring had a relationship with Sharon. There there was all kinds of speculation, all kinds of theories. But what happened was there was a girlfriend of a former member who was actually in jail for murder of the Manson family. She went to Barker Ranch and then she was told the whole story of what had happened. And this person said, whoa, and went to the authorities with the story. Meanwhile, some members of the Manson family, like we said, they had resorted to like petty theft. The neighbors that knew them in where they were in Death Valley knew that they were troublemakers. There was just stuff happening. There were some arrests associated with that. And Susan Atkins got arrested and basically kind of bragged about what happened. I mean, that's ultimately what happens is they're all rounded up and arrested for car theft. And they wind up in jail because nobody else who's come to authorities is really believed. It's not until Susan Atkins repeatedly brags about the story. And even her cellmates aren't taken seriously initially. And and Susan Atkins ultimately is the one that blows the lid off the whole story. That's right. And eventually tells authorities what happened and arrests ensue. Yeah, exactly. The trial, which again in the book Helter Skelter is so brilliantly kind of laid out. It's a complete circus. An absolute circus prosecuted by Vincent Bugliosi. We won't get into the trial here. I mean, that's a whole episode and our our mission here isn't to re-litigate the Manson trial. It's to talk about these forgotten victims, but they were all found guilty. And sentenced to death. And sentenced to death, which was later commuted to life in prison when the death penalty in California was deemed unconstitutional. And I think what shocked the world was that the people involved in these crimes were 20 and 21 years old. They were all Manson followers. Most of them were women. They were sort of looked at as like, this could have been your daughter. This could have been your neighbor, your sister. 
but they were fully brainwashed by Charles Manson. Well, I think that's what was so scary about it. And I think that you looked at these Manson girls and they just, they did look like everyone's sister or daughters. And it was like, how can these many middle-class girls from seemingly, I mean, we looked deeper and realized that that's not true, but seemingly normal homes. How did they become these murderers? And it does, it does fascinate. It does fascinate, and I think that to myself, what if, okay, what if Manson had gotten the musical fame or the fame he was looking for, right? Maybe had gotten the record deal. And again, we encounter this again and again. Because Manson couldn't be great at being good, he became great at being evil. Because And he's very notorious, he's very infamous for the crime that he orchestrated, that he manipulated. And I think also that the 60s, which started out with so much promise with the election of JFK, and by the end of the 60s, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Vietnam has has gone on. I mean, there's just been so, Malcolm X has been assassinated. There's been so much upheaval. And I think Joan Didion puts it perfectly. And Sarah, why don't you tell us what Joan Didion said? So Joan Didion wrote, Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969. Ended at the exact moment when the word of the murders on Cielo Drive traveled like brush fire through the community. And in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day and the paranoia was fulfilled. So thank you so much for listening to another episode of Ivy League Murders. And as always, please stay safe and stay curious. Yeah, we're not quite done with you yet, though, because we've got a really awesome... I love the name of this podcast. Okay, this I'll ask you to hold on to listen to a trailer of one of my new favorite podcasts. They're, and, they're Irish, of course. And, <laughs> so, our, our, um, Sarah, um, can you please tell say um, Kian? Kian. It's Kian. Kian, okay. I can never pronounce his name, but he's absolutely awesome. And the podcast is called Dickheads of History. And what he does is actually Roman Polanski was one of... He has a great Facebook page, so check out his Facebook page but he'll do like dickhead of the day and he Roman Polanski was recently a dickhead of the day but it's actually really pretty interesting because what he does is he kind of brings up the point of can you love the art and not the artist and so it brings up a lot of interesting points about whether you can separate the two and it's pretty interesting and he brings up kind of the dark side of a lot of people that I didn't know had a dark side and I'm pretty fascinated by the whole thing so please hold on check out his podcast check out his Facebook group it's totally a blast are you a person who needs to know the full story? See the dark side to individuals who are normally worshipped? Look into tales of history that weren't written by those who were victorious? Then the Dickheads of History podcast is what you need. I'm Kian Tookie and I will show you the other side to these glorified individuals and give you the chance to decide if they should be seen in such a great light. The podcast can be found on any major podcasting platform and the Dickheads of History Facebook group is where you can find out more on each episode. Have your say on the podcast and tell me who you think is a dickhead of history.